0: And now for something completely different.
1: It's a rich Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money. Markets. Life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors.
2: And good morning and welcome to the Thursday edition. It's the second best day of the week for The Real Investment Show. Love Thursdays. Thursdays a great. Friday here, even working on a Friday is not bad because you know it's Friday, right? I mean, just you know, it's just it's just, it's just all good. A um, couple of good things yesterday, of course, uh, the Federal Reserve announcing their rate hike, and as we noted yesterday, we said that if the Fed pretty much met expectations, which was a 50 basis point rate hike, and they're tapering their balance sheet by 90, 90 to 95 billion dollars a month that markets would likely rally because that's what markets were already expecting. And I said, but if we got some, some good news, right, a little bit of a dovish stance to <clears throat> the announcement, that could really spur a rally in the markets. And yesterday morning, the markets really kind of just flopped around all day, kind of waiting for the meeting. Um, at the time of the meeting, at the announcement, markets kind of vacillated back and forth, right around break even, really, more or less as the Fed did announce the 50 basis point hike, as expected. And everybody's kind of holding their breath, though, for the press conference. And this is the the big moment. This is where Jerome Powell, of course, comes out and and makes all of his statements about what's going on in the meeting. Well, what was the, the dovish surprise, we shall say, is two things. One, the rate of the taper is actually a little bit slower than was previously expected. It was expected that in June, the Fed would start by tapering the balance sheet by $90 billion, But instead, they're going to start at about $47.5 billion and then roll that up over a three- or four-month period to that 90 to $95 billion cap. So that was a little bit slower of an advance. So that was kind of good news for the, for the markets because now they're not going to take away so much of the punch bowl right up front. But the second thing, and really the thing that really spurred the markets, is that Jerome Powell ruled out the 75 basis point increase entirely. So this really kind of set the markets up for this. And yesterday, the interest rate on the two-year Treasury fell sharply. Now, this is very important because the two-year Treasury rate leads the Fed funds rate. And if you go back in history and look, wherever that point is that the two-year treasury rate starts to fall that begins to really cap the ability of the fed to raise rates so the sharp fall off yesterday in the two-year treasury is going to limit how far the fed can actually hike rates based on historical analysis now the other side of this of course is that kind of dovish news did actually spark a fairly decent short covering rally and the reason that we said we'd likely get a very strong rally is because of the extreme negative sentiment that we have in the markets right now. If you take a look at the net bullish sentiment, that's at the lowest level, basically, of any bear market bottom, 2008, the dot-com crisis, you name it. We have negative investor sentiment at levels that are normally associated with bear market bottoms, not corrections. It's just how negative investors are right now. So between that, light positioning, fairly illiquid markets we've got very limited liquidity in markets that really led to this very sharp rally yesterday NASdaQ sP up 3% yesterday a huge 3% rally um, that did a couple of things here of course as you know we, we kind of talk about you know the markets itself again did solidly trigger the money flow buy signal that we've been watching here lately and, and needing that to turn up that money flow buy signal now turning up from a very low level. So this is going to provide a bit of fuel here now. This morning, futures are pointing a little bit lower. Dow's down about 133 points. S&P right now down about 23. Um, That's not surprising. After a 3% rally yesterday, there were a lot of people that were trapped in this market at these lows, really concerned about where things were going. So this lift that we got yesterday really across the board, a lot of this in tech stocks, energy stocks, etc., Um, Kind of a big, broad rally yesterday. A lot of these individuals that were kind of trapped in the markets looking for an exit, not surprising, seeing a little bit of selling today. It will be important that we continue to get a push through um, over the next couple of days higher. Now, today we've got some key uh, um, uh, economic data coming out. Tomorrow we have the jobs report for April. Uh, So everybody's going to be watching that employment report, as the Fed specifically noted, of course, they are watching inflationary pressures, but also watching the employment rate. That's their two primary mandates, and so they're going to continue to hike rates. Now, they didn't say they were going to—you know—they were one and done here. Uh, they did say they were going to continue to hike rates. Fifty basis point rate hikes are on the table for the next few meetings as we begin to move forward. But again, what will potentially mitigate their ability to hike rates will be slower economic growth. If we have indeed see a peak in inflation, if we start to see lower inflation numbers over the course of the next few months, this is going to start to cause the Fed to pull back here a bit. Now, going back to 2018 as an example, uh, the Fed hiked 50 basis points, and you know this is you know kind of that part and parcel timing that we start talking about raising interest rates, trying to taper their balance sheet they were trying to raise you know raise rates and taper their balance sheet in 2018 and remember about three months later markets were down about 20 percent and they reversed all that policy so as we kind of move forward here as the economy gets weaker as we see a peak in inflation if we do continue to see more trouble with equities as we move forward, and this is an important point, we're not out of the woods by any stretch of the imagination. This buy signal that we're getting right now, and of course, we're very close to triggering a, uh, a moving average crossover as well. If those indicators turn up, that certainly does bode well for at least a fairly significant short term market rally. I mean, we could very well see this market push up, um, you know, three, you know, two, 300 points. That wouldn't be outside the realm of possibility at all at this point and that would certainly provide some nice kind of relief rally in the markets but we still have a lot of concerns going forward economically earnings wise Um, of course the fed is hiking rates they are removing that support from the markets so there are still a lot of challenges for equities as we move forward so as, as we as we think about this rally be careful what you'll see on the media of course is this idea that, the, oh, thank goodness, the, the bear market's over, the bull market's back. We need to definitely be in the markets now. And all this talk about recession and bear markets and all that will fade from the headlines. And that's going to be just about the time that we get kind of the next volatile pickup, uh, volatility pickup in the markets. And, and this is going to be kind of, I, I sense that this is going to kind of be the, the, the game book for the rest of this year. Is this market that kind of just gyrates around and vacillates up and down. Now, there are some some good key bullish indicators here. I mentioned, of course, that the American Association of Individual Investors, those are the retail investors, their net bullish sentiment is at levels that are normally associated with bear market bottoms. And again, we're only down about 10% from the peak in the S&P, and we're talking about major bear market-type negative sentiment. The forward returns from historically over the next year from those lows tends to be very positive. Now, that's certainly kind of an interesting position that we're in considering, again, the market's just been consolidating now for about 9, 10 months. We really haven't gone much of anywhere. Been a lot of volatility. And as we talked about yesterday with Danny Ratliff, you know, investors are treating this as if they're losing all their money and we're in the middle of a major bear market and that's not the case at all in terms of the major indexes now there are certainly stocks that are down 30 40 50 60 percent. absolutely there's some stocks in very big bear markets but the indices are still holding up here pretty well we've got a lot of stuff to get into this morning about the fed of course what they said yesterday a little bit more detail on that talk about uh, portfolio management going forward from here. Talk about some of the economic data as well that's starting to show some signs of real concern, ISM manufacturing, services, and more. We'll get into that this morning with Michael Leibowitz right here on The Real Investment Show.
1: Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com.
0: How do the richest people of the world invest and protect their families? Richard Rosso and Danny Ratliff's next virtual lunch and learn on The Truth About Life Insurance will show you how to ensure your income, minimize your taxes, and protect your real estate. Thursday, May 12th at noon. The most important insurance policy you'll ever own is the one you'll have when you die. Register now for The Truth About Life Insurance Lunch and Learn at realinvestmentadvice.com. The Truth About Life Insurance with Ratliff and Rosso, Real Investment Advice. Advice.com.
1: The Real Investment Show.
2: So welcome back to the show this morning. It's uh, 617. Woke up this morning. Dogs want to get fed. You know, they they run back and forth through the house between trying, you know, both of our dogs are herders. So they try uh. to herd you towards the food bowl, <laughs> so you'll feed them. But my dog has to have surgery this morning. Uh, my Uh-oh. older dog has cancer, Uh-oh. so we've got to have surgery this morning. See how he's, you know, see if it's what the damage is and where we go to from here with that. But he can't eat, right? So like, as normally even with humans, right? You can't eat, you know, before yeah. your surgery. Yeah. So. Our dog is now thoroughly convinced that we don't love him anymore because we are no longer feeding him. Apparently, we've just decided to starve him to death. Yeah. And and so is This Gunner. This is Gunner. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So Sniper, he's completely confused. He's like, "What? Well, just because you're not feeding that old old dog that I really don't like that much, why are you not feeding me? I'm the one you love, right?" So I know. <laughs> but it was funny because I have to go out the back. I I go out the back door of our house. We have yeah. a door in the back that leads to the garage that my car is parked in. And so as I was going out that door, my dog gets in front of the door and is literally stopping me from leaving <laughs> so I will feed him. So
3: desperate times,
2: desperate times, desperate measures. Anyway, good morning, Michael Leibowitz. How are you this morning?
3: I'm great. Thank you, Lance. Well, you sound terrible. I sound a hell of a lot better than I did <laughs> uh, the last few days.
2: So a couple of things, uh, as I already talked about this morning, you know, the Fed pretty much came in line with expectations. And, you know, as, as as we had talked about previously on the show, not nearly as hawkish as everybody expected. And came in, you know, saying, look, you know, we're not going to hike 75 basis points. And, you know, we're going to actually taper the balance sheet a little bit slower than expected. So not nearly the hawkish extreme that, you know, a lot of even the markets were looking for, but a lot of the mainstream analysts were talking about, you know, oh, it's going to be 75 basis points. They've got to hike faster. Bullard talking about needing to hike faster wasn't the case. And that led, of course, as we've been talking about here on the show, with such extreme negative sentiment by investors, light positioning, a lot of, uh, you know, uh, investors offsides, you know, that really provided the fuel for a very sharp rally yesterday, which is what we got. A lot of short covering as well um, was thrown into that. But, you know, this its going to it's kind of interesting here because now the two year Treasury rate, as I noted, is falling uh, fairly sharply and that's going to potentially limit the Fed's ability to hike rates as much as markets were previously expecting.
3: Your thoughts? So uh, I think what the Fed always aims to do is convey a narrative and At times the market is in line with the Fed's narrative. Other times the market is overly aggressive or overly conservative. And I think probably this time, more than other times, what the Fed is trying to do is get the market to do the Fed's heavy lifting. The Fed doesn't want to raise rate Fed funds to two, two and a half percent. They don't really I'm not sure they wanna take two or three trillion off their balance sheet. I think what they want the markets to do, stocks and bonds, is they want the bond market yields to rise and they want the stock market to fall. They want to take the froth out of the market. They want to kind of knock back some of the investor consumer sentiment to some degree. They want to raise rates, which will help take the edge off inflation. And their approach is kind of a two-prong approach. Let the market do the heavy lifting and we'll follow up with some lighter lifting. So, So when we talk about Fed narrative, what the Fed is talking about it's very important, if that's their tact to to make sure the market is thinking what they are thinking. And what the Fed what Jerome Powell and the Fed did yesterday in both the statement and the press conference was walk the line. He basically was not overly hawkish. He was not he, he really I, you, after everything they put out, you couldn't say he was more hawkish or more dovish, not even by a little. You know, you pointed out that that he said we're not going to do, 75. Mm-hmm. I know the market had 75 basis points priced in for June. I don't think 75 was ever on the table and I don't think there was ever a Fed member other than kind of throwing it out that we could do more was talking seriously about it. So, you know, I don't really think that was too dovish, but I also, you know, don't think that they could have said, "Look, there are a couple signs that inflation is starting to to stop rising." They Mm -hmm. didn't take advantage of that. The Fed could have said something about GDP was negative last quarter, which they mentioned in the statement. But then they went on to say, but this, that and the other. Mm -hmm. So I I really think they purposely like the narrative, like what the market thinks, the market is right where it needs to be. And because of that, they really didn't stray. And it was a lot of people said this is going to be the most important fed meeting of our lifetime <laughs> I, I told you i said this is going to be the most boring fed meeting of our lifetime they're going to say exactly what they've said and the market is priced for exactly what they said there's well, no potential for fireworks well
2: we did get fireworks though in the markets right i mean it's uh, yeah. you know you'd say and, the markets were priced for what the fed was saying but that's not and, really the case markets were offsides You know, on both positioning as well as sentiment. And the the real question now is going to be, and again, you you did bring up an important point, which is, you know, let's just assume the Fed is hoping the market is going to do the work for them. And that's that's that work has been done again. uh, Investor bullish sentiments now at the low uh, is at bear market lows. I mean, this is where we saw investor sentiment at the bottom of the financial crisis. Investor uh, investor positioning is a lot of that same way as we showed in our, our newsletter last weekend. Our technical gauge that we run uh, for our simple visor clients, that's at levels that is normally associated with bear market bottoms. And, you know, so a lot of that, a lot of that work from in terms of higher interest rates on the bond market, which is now slowing the housing market, we're seeing ISM slow down fairly sharply on the manufacturing side, as well as the services side. You know, here's my question is that a lot of that work is being done by the market itself. The Fed is only at 75 basis points off of zero. So, I mean, if we wind up in a recession later this year, they, they still need to hike rates more so they have the ability to lower rates. If we get into recession, if they're allowing the market to do the work for them and they're saying, okay, we won't have to, maybe we want to raise rates to 1.5%, that still doesn't give them a lot of, of juice to work with. Um, In terms of lowering rates, which is really the only thing that helps economic growth, Uh, the QE doesn't really feed into the economy, but lowering rates does. And they haven't really given themselves a lot of room here.
3: And I agree. I think what you have to think about is this is not like anything in the last 30 years because we're running inflation at nearly nine percent. So what the Fed is not looking at is the economy nearly to the degree that they typically would look at it. Right. I mean, I think if this was a normal environment with inflation running one and a half, maybe two percent, and the you know we just got a negative GDP print, GDP number, and there are clear signs in like the ISM data, China slowing, mm-hmm. that the economy will be slowing. the The new Atlanta Fed forecast is, I think, it's like one and a half or one point eight percent positive growth, which is you know, means the first half of the year will basically have been flat if that holds holds up. Right. We'd be in an environment where the Fed is would probably be like, you know what, we may do 25 or 50, but we're going to back off. We're pretty much at the end. The economy is back to where we want. Inflation is back to where we want. Now we're at a point where the economy may be where they want, but inflation is showing. There are a couple signs, but really there's nothing that really points to inflation has peaked and it's coming down sharply in the months ahead. And even if we say, okay, inflation's coming down, inflation coming down to 6% by November does not is not the problem, right? It, it, it doesn't fix things. Inflation at 6% is still a big problem for the Fed. And because of that, the Fed has to stay on this horse and probably raise rates too much All
2: right well and again then and i think this is what we go back to talking about what is that risk of a fed policy mistake and what's the outcome of that I, I, again you know if we're talking about markets have been through a correction you know, been have been a consolidation now for roughly about nine months i mean we're we're basically about where we were last september in, in terms of kind of market price right so markets you know markets have gone up and down a lot uh, been a lot of excitement a lot of disappointment but really haven't gone anywhere in about 9 months and if you know with sentiment as negative as it is positioning as negative as it is you know if the fed's going to walk in into this and create a policy mistake you know there's there's a lot of damage that's still potentially left to be done in the markets and and you know i you know i don't know what that outcome is going to look like or how to or, you know how you know we need to be positioning for it right now but you know earnings estimates are still going up. It's interesting that despite what's going on, despite the stuff that we're talking about, higher interest rates, tighter balance sheet, you know, weaker economy, and Wall Street analysts are still hiking estimates for companies for the rest of this year, which is, you know, bringing down forward valuations. Forward valuations are now 17 and a half times earnings on the S&P, but that's only a function of the fact that prices haven't gone anywhere and analysts keep ratcheting up earnings for this year and next. And I'm not sure how they're how they're getting there. Right, Mike? Right.
3: Right. And and, uh, that's where we're going to have to have some sort of potentially further correction, because it's going to be tough for earnings to stay where they are for most companies. Some will see good earnings, but I think a lot of companies are a lot of pressure. They've raised prices. They've done the whole shrinkflation thing. They're limited in what they can do. And it's still the tightest jobs market we've ever seen. You know, go, you could go back as long as you want, you know, at least in modern history. Mm-hmm. So wage pressure will at least for the short term continue, meaning that companies have to raise prices. The their cost of goods is still increasing, yet consumers aren't getting paid enough their, their money in real terms after inflation is falling. So consumers are, are cannot keep paying for higher prices. And this is where the rubber hits the road. And the stock market still has some potential pain as it adjusts to this reality.
2: Yeah, and that's 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 actually going to be the the big issue here is is really the consumer since they make up 70% of the economy. Um, what happens to them over the next six, eight, nine months, particularly as real wages are falling, real retail sales are falling. In fact, I did an interview about this yesterday. We'll talk about that. We come back from the break. Don't go away.
1: advice blog. It's required reading for the informed investor catch it today at realinvestmentadvice.com.
0: How do the richest people of the world invest and protect their families? Richard Rosso and Danny Ratliff's next virtual lunch and learn on the truth about life insurance. will show you how to ensure your income, minimize your taxes and protect your real estate. Thursday, May 12th at noon. The most important insurance policy you'll ever own is the one you'll have when you die. Register now for the truth about life insurance lunch and learn at realinvestmentadvice.com. The truth about life insurance with Ratliff and Rosso. RealInvestmentAdvice.com
1: You're listening to The Real Investment Show.
2: So, um, as we get ready to kind of open up the trading day, we've got a, you know, bit of economic data that's coming out today and then, of course, tomorrow, uh, Friday, will be the Uh, The the Bureau of Labor Statistics, that's the big job report, right? So that'll be the job report for April. Of course, uh, the markets will be looking into that to see if because of that first quarter weakness in GDP, is that starting to translate into potentially slower job gains? And what does that job makeup look like in terms of the economy? So are we seeing signs of wages potentially peaking here, wage growth peaking? Are we starting to see you know, potentially job growth slow, those type of things. So just some indications uh, really to where the economy is relative to employ- employment. And this is, as, as I left off the last segment saying, you know, if we take a look at some of the economic data, ISM Manufacturing Index, that has turned lower and has been declining and, and is getting weaker, Start is suggesting, now it's still positive, right? We're still in expansion mode, but that expansion is getting weaker. And that, of course, is a concern because of, you know, the economic growth that we're starting to see slow down. Saw the same thing yesterday in the services index, that services index has has weakened. But importantly, in those indexes, what we're seeing some weakness in is we're starting to see the employment trends weaken. We're starting to see the new orders trend weaken. And and that's those are the important things. So are these companies hiring more people Um, at the same pace they were and are the new orders still, you know, robust, right? Because, again, as we talked about a few minutes ago, 70% of the economy is consumption. So that's me, you, Mike, Brent. That's us going out and buying stuff, you know, putting gas in our car and doing, you know, buying groceries and those type of things. Um, of course, in order to have that stuff, somewhere that retailer had to place an order for more product, right? So the the people that are manufacturing that product to deliver to the retailers to sell to you, those orders are starting to slow, suggesting that maybe demand isn't quite as strong as it was. And this is going to be part and parcel of this, this outlook. And, and again, as, as we were talking about in the last segment with Mike, is this is an interesting time for the markets. Because again, when you take a look at the negative sentiments, you take a look at the fact the markets haven't gone anywhere over the last nine months, you take a look at a lot of the devastation in the stocks, there's you know there's a case that we could make that maybe the market is bottoming here even though we haven't really had this quote unquote bear market that everybody's been expecting but yet there's another case that is easy to make that suggests there's a lot more downside potentially to the market and it's it's we've got this very negative sentiment but we have still have overvaluation in some areas of the market and we have a lot of headwinds from a slowing economy and and higher interest rates and and there's certainly a case that we can be made that historically those types of of structures lead to bear markets so this is going to be a very challenging outcome but you know let me get let me get over here to mike just to talk with him a little bit about this economic data Um, today we're going to be taking a look at housing starts building permits jobless claims continuing claims again tomorrow uh, and also the philly fed index today I, i think we're going to see weakness really kind of across all of those numbers mike what do you think
3: I would say except for initial job claims and i think the jobs market is going to be very difficult to assess for a while in the jolts data for instance those being laid off or fired was is the lowest rate it's been running at in 20 or 30 years and at the same time those quitting is the highest rate it's been in 20 or 30 years so people still feel emboldened to quit and find a better job and companies are scared to death of firing employees. So I I think we're in a situation where companies have been understaffed for so long and they're finally getting to where they need to be. And yes, they see some weakness, but it was so hard to hire employees. And and I think in a lot of cases, those employees are not exactly what they wanted, substandard, so to speak, (laughs) but they're so scared to fire them. No, it's substandard. Yeah, Sorry about that,
2: That's you, but <laughs> yeah, we just hired Brent, substandard. Um, but no, no, you're right. I mean, look, you know, empl- companies are always slow to hire and slow to fire. So coming out of a recession, you know, or or downturn in the economy, and they've they've just laid off employees, you know, they're trying to protect their profit margins, etc. And they see the economy starting to recover and they're like, yeah, you know, things are getting a little bit better, but You know, I don't want to take on an employee because when I take on an employee, you know, I'm doing that from, you know, I'm getting married to these people. Right. When you hire an employee, it's not an easy I got to train them. I got to provide them a place. And then, you know, it's, you know, firing them is difficult because if I fire them without cause, then they then they file unemployment claims back against the company. And that drives up my unemployment insurance. So when you hire an employee, it's basically a marriage. And so the one thing we'll do. We see companies do right after you know a downturn in the economy is they hire temporary work. We see temporary hires kind of go up. We see uh, movements towards more capital expenditures towards automation. Can I can I do so instead of hiring an employee, can I fill that position with automation or some type of, of other you know technology um, to increase the efficiency of the employees I do have? And that's exactly what we're seeing right now, Mike. We're seeing a lot of companies commit some capex. To um, information technology, uh, automation, those type of things, we're we're seeing that occur right now. But you're you're also correct, absolutely correct, that you know when you get a good employee, the last thing you want to do is fire that employee because if he gets a job somewhere else, you're not going to be able to
3: hire him back. (laughs) And and I think and and good employees are
2: really hard. to, To your point, you know, substandard versus not substandard, good employees are really hard
3: to come by. And I think I would argue that if you got a mediocre employee, they're hard to come by. <laughs> I mean, you talk—I'm not kidding—you talk to a, no, lot, it's people, true. a lot of Brent, small businesses. Brent a caps out businesses. at the mediocre level, so. <laughs> yeah. we've talked about my brother in the printing and marketing business. Yeah he has hired a lot of sub substandard employees and he's thrilled to have them on board. Yeah. Not because they're great employees because he has someone in that seat to do something. Right. And I I just think about him, he is it's going to be really tough for him to let go people until he sees a sharp decline in business and just can't afford to pay yeah. him cuz he's scared of what happens in 6 or 9 months but you know if the economy starts rebounding and he's again in that situation where he can't hire
2: no, no it's and, and that's a and, that's a, it's a no, that's a very factual point and that's and, and that's a that's a problem
3: for all companies and that's why I think initial jobless claims are going to typically. That's one of the first places you can look in the labor market <clears throat> to see signs that it is starting to turn the other way. Mm-hmm. I don't. I'm. I could be wrong, but I don't think that's what we're going to see at this time. We're going to see the employment surveys, like the ISM National Manufacturing Survey basically dropped to almost 50 meaning half the the people surveyed the manufacturing executive surveyed don't see them hiring new employees in the coming months that was from 57ish that was a sharp drop right the ISM the ISM services survey i believe went negative i could be wrong but it went slightly below 50 meaning more people are actually negative on it than than optimistic on hiring. And
2: that's actually a good point, too, because, you know, when you take a look at the CERT, like the NFIB as an example, the National Federation of Independent Business, that's a survey of small business, small to mid sized businesses, but primarily that lower tier. You know, they don't survey the Apples and the Microsofts of the world. And you and I were actually having this conversation yesterday is that, Really, a bulk of the hiring that we're seeing right now is really coming in for the large companies. Small to medium-sized businesses really aren't hiring that many employees because a) they can't afford it; they don't have the, you know, the the revenue coming in to support more employees. But they're also the ones that are the most immediately impacted by a slowing economy. Uh, again, there's you know that small to mid-sized business area; they have very they have very little margin of error in a lot of cases where changes to the economy, a slowing of consumption, um, you know, higher higher input costs, et cetera, really impact their profit margins f- very quickly versus these big, large companies
3: that have a little bit more breathing room. Right. Right. And I, I think it was in the NFIB survey that the outlook hit a forty eight year low. Or an all-time low. I don't think the survey even existed 48 years ago. <laughs> Hit a basically a 50-year low, right. and and employment in the ADP report for small businesses fell by 150,000 jobs. It was more than made more than offset by large companies. Right. So again, your apples, your Microsofts are still hiring, and your small companies that are yeah, you know, I would say are at the front line of the economy. That you look at a Starbucks and if they sell five less cups of coffee a day, I'm not even sure they notice your mom and pop shop right next door. They sell five and five less cups of coffee a day. They notice, Mm -hmm. they feel all the little bumps in the road and they adjust much quicker because of that. They are also much more susceptible to inflation and higher wages and they don't have as many cushions or as much power in place to, to leverage in place. So, when we start thinking about economic slowdown, it's small business that's going to show us the signs. It's, I think in general, Lance, we have to look at different places this time than we would in a typical economic slowdown. And small business is probably... The best place we can start looking
2: absolutely um you know so one of the things that you know i want to talk about after the break um in particular is you know as as we noted uh you know in the show today is that the markets are only down you know 10 11 for the year and markets really gone nowhere over the last nine months even though you may feel like you've been in a major bear market right and and but you look at a lot of these stocks that are down 30 40 50 60 percent you know what's really happening here with the markets and is this time actually different than what we've seen in the past we'll talk about the impact of passive investing we come back from the break Um, interesting comments from Elon Musk and Kathy Wood in this regard don't go away
1: news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com.
0: How do the richest people of the world invest and protect their families? Richard Rosso and Danny Ratliff's next virtual lunch and learn on the truth about life insurance. We'll show you how to ensure your income, minimize your taxes, and protect your real estate. Thursday, May 12th at noon. The most important insurance policy you'll ever own is the one you'll have when you die. Register now for the truth about life insurance lunch and learn at RealInvestmentAdvice.com. The truth about life insurance with Ratliff and Rosso. RealInvestmentAdvice.com.
1: The Real Investment Show.
2: So we've talked about here on uh, the show uh, previously about the impact of passive investing in fact we've written a couple of articles about this on the website um you know talking about the bloodbath below the surface of the markets that you don't see because if you're just holding an s&p index fund again you're down about 10 percent or so for the year and the markets have been basically flat for nine months now but below the surface you know below the apple the microsoft the netflix the nvidia's that make up 33 percent of the market cap of the s&p Below the surface, there's been just a tremendous amount of devastation. So what the index is doing and what the markets are doing have actually been two very different things. So we've talked about that. But there's a, there was an interesting debate on Twitter yesterday about this impact of passive investing. Elon Musk and, and Kathy Wood both kind of criticized passive investing in a Twitter thread. And it's interesting, of course, because Kathy Wood runs ARK Investments, which is a bunch of ETFs. But their discussion was sparked – and I don't want to take the conversation a little bit of a different direction because we've already talked about the impact of passive investing on holding up indexes, but but a, a different direction here because this, this whole debate was started by BlackRock. Now, BlackRock has – I'm sorry, it was, it was, it was, this whole debate was started by Mark Andreessen about BlackRock. Sorry. So BlackRock has a huge stable of – ETFs that are huge in terms of size. Vanguard as well. They have trillions of dollars under management in these ETFs. Now, remember, the ETF is a structure. You put your money into the ETF. The ETF then takes it and goes buys the shares of the underlying companies. So if you want to buy an S&P, you know, BlackRock S&P index fund, it then buys the shares of Apple, Facebook, Netflix, Google. It buys all 500 companies in the S&P and puts it inside the ETF. Now, BlackRock has, is, is the investor in those companies. So if BlackRock has trillions of dollars invested in Apple, they have a voice on the board of directors of these companies. And this is one of the issues that Mike and I have talked about before, specifically re- relating to this ESG, this environmental social governance type investing, you know, people want to vote their virtues. So I, I want to, you know, I want to save the planet. So I'm going to invest in this ESG fund. It has nothing to do. You know, you buying shares of Apple or Google or whatever that are ESG friendly have nothing to do with the environment. It just basically puts more money with these companies. Well, a lot of these companies are owned by those ESG funds, which are owned by BlackRock. So, you know, what the criticism here is is that this move to passive indexing has gave a handful of major institutions like BlackRock, Vanguard, and others an outsized voice on the direction of companies. So, for instance, ExxonMobil as a good example of this. ExxonMobil recently had to give up, share, uh, give up board seats to a little tiny company called Engine Number 1 that that knows nothing about oil and gas drilling. They know nothing about the petroleum industry, but they got two seats on the board of directors to promote more ESG-friendly activities by uh, ExxonMobil, divesting themselves of oil and gas drilling, taking on more green energy-type programs, etc., which are less profitable, by the way. So how did Engine 1 get on that board? Well, BlackRock and... Uh, CalPERS out of California, two big holders of ExxonMobil stock, push their votes to put engine number one into those board seats. So the question, and I'll throw this over to Mike just to get his comments, you know, will we look back and say that we took away the rights of individual investors to have a voice in the companies they actually invest in by this move to passive indexing? Mike, your thoughts?
3: Yeah, I think to some degree, yeah. But it was always the big institutions that owned and controlled i think the big difference today is that those big institutions didn't really they focus much more on share price and what could the company do to push the share price higher and i think over the last 20 30 years that manifested itself in share buybacks that was the big activist movement of these large, the vanguards, the Mm Cowpers, the Fidelities of the world, they push companies, don't worry about investing in your future, just buy back shares. That's what everyone wants. Everyone wants the stock price to go up today. No one cares what it does five years from now. Now we're seeing this more, quote unquote, socially conscious of, of some of these large institutions and they're telling them, we need you to be ESG friendly. Not because, I mean, do you really think these big executives care? What Exxon's doing? No, they care about that 25, 30 thirty-cent commission that they make every time someone buys or sells a share, uh, buys a share of uh, of their ETF. Well, so and, it's and profit let,
2: Yeah, let me jump in on that because that's an important point you just brought up. And you, you said 25, thirty cents, you know, share commission. It's the difference is is BlackRock has an S and P index fund that charges one quarter of one percent for the expense ratio in that fund. Their ESG fund, which is exactly the same holdings, basically, as the S&P fund, has almost a three-time higher expense ratio than the S&P index fund. We've talked about that on the show before. So to, to your point, it's a very important point, is that these these companies like BlackRock and Larry Fink are pushing these ESG funds, not because they perform better. You and I did a graph showing the the near 99% correlation between the S&P and the ESG fund in terms of performance. These funds don't perform better, but they pay three and four times more for the company issuing those ETFs. And I think that is the important point.
3: So two points, Lance. One is that it's probably the same computer running both algorithms to run those ETFs. Correct. And it's the same lawyer that wrote the same documents and added a few a few statements about ESG. Right. Right? So from expense for a, a expense perspective, there's probably almost zero difference between the two, but they charge like you said about three times more. The other thing is that all of a sudden these ESG ETF uh, firms like oil yeah. they like oil companies they think that they're doing the right things that they're moving into green energy that they're divesting away from the old stinky pumps and all that stuff that's not true that may be true to some degree and they are doing that i'm not saying they're not no what they really like about it is that energy stocks are up what 30 40 percent this year yeah the market's down 10 percent, and their performance if they are are not at least up to the benchmark in energy stocks is lagging right so that is what that is that's called a money chase that's not, <laughs> not called a socially conscious well trading decision well
2: right and see you'll know you'll know when we make full circle on this is when <laughs> coal companies start going up 30 40 percent and they they come up with some excuse as so why you know burning coal is actually energy efficient and and good for the uh, environment and they start putting those companies into those etfs because of performance and it, look this uh, to your point it always comes down to performance that's what this is always about because if your funds aren't what the death of esg will be the lack of performance and and that's that's really the bottom line of all this but but one other you know one other kind of sideline to this you know the other problem with passive indexing and look it sounds great for you know look just the the thesis is just sit at home buy yourself an index and just track the market over time and 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 look you will you'll track the market over time and you will get the average rate of return over time but there's also the problem with that from the standpoint that the reason that we're supposed to be investing is not to be average right I mean our goal is not to be an average investor I mean we can be average at anything uh, that's not really our goal. If we can be average at work, is that really our goal? <laughs> you know, um, but the problem with passive indexing is, is because now we, we now kind of, sh- you know, shrug off the, the work of doing the research, looking for opportunities. We just say, okay, well I'm just in the index. So I miss great opportunities. You know, you may love or hate Tesla. It doesn't matter. The stock has had a phenomenal return over, uh, you know, since it was inception. And, if you weren't invested if you weren't doing your homework and you didn't invest in Tesla and you were just buying an S&P index you never got exposure to Tesla until well after it had grown up and gotten, you know, very big and large in terms of price and market cap valuation when it was actually added to the S&P. So you miss a lot of opportunity to create wealth in the markets by also being passive because you're just kind of shrugging off the work of what investing is really all about in the first place. Mike, your thoughts?
3: I I would also argue you're misallocating capital. You know, when I'm buying, I have 100 bucks to invest in the S&P ETF. 7 bucks is going to Apple. $0 is going to that cool, unique hydrogen company out of California that thinks they have a way to create energy at zero mm-hmm. emissions and at a very cheap cost. Right. And those companies are struggling to raise money while money pours into the largest and biggest companies many of which are just buying back stock and sitting on a ton of cash mm-hmm. so it's not just you yourself and your media your average returns it's the big broad effect on the economy as a whole and what we are really investing in yeah. for our futures
2: yeah and, and, and it's very true I mean you know speaking of buybacks Apple has spent more uh, now with their latest buybacks announcement they've spent um, Sixty percent of a trillion dollars. They spent six hundred billion dollars of capital on buybacks, not innovation of new technology, not coming out with the the, the next new you know iPhone, iWatch innovation that's going to change the world, not you know the Apple electric car, whatever it is. You know, yes, they're spending money in those areas, but you spent six hundred billion dollars in just buying back shares, which is the least best use of capital by any company uh, that wraps up the show for the day of course mike thanks so much for joining us uh, we'll be back um, tomorrow with financial fitness friday get by the website uh, check out the simple visor platform of course as always you can you know check out our models follow our research uh, mike and i post commentary every week there as well specific, specifically for subscribers uh, that's all at the website simplevisor.com And, of course, get by the website realinvestmentadvice.com for our latest blog post, Mike's latest article on liquidity, the next liquidity crisis from Japan. That's on the website realinvestmentadvice.com. Send your questions, comments, emails. Have a great day. Three minutes on markets and money coming right up.
3: to his that's worth.